Looking for an assist with your credit card, but you can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, there should be some passion. This doesn't have to be boring. Boring, boring. Hey, one thing the game needs is more people like you. You, you. Still have grown men run around tight pants. It's Mookie Betts. It's Daniel Bard. It's Steve Aoki. Here's Salt Lamakia. This is Brock Holt. Hey, this is John Lester. Baseball is baseball. Baseball isn't boring. Welcome to Baseball Isn't Boring. Here's your host, Rob Radford. All right, one of the first people who came on the Baseballs and Boring podcast. I don't know if you knew this name. I think it was like the first week we launched the podcast. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It was, you were deemed our Hollywood uh, baseballs and boring correspondent. Oh boy. I didn't really follow up on that. Did I? <laughs> no, it was, it's all right. It's, it's, it's playing, it's playing the long game. It's okay. <laughs> That's exactly right. And it's paying off today. Thank you for having me for a second time. Oh, and, and let me tell you, you, you were so good. I've referenced one of the things that you've said multiple times and people, it just hits a home for so many people, not only people who grew up going to Fenway Park, but in any old stadium, which is how you were indoctrinated into the human anatomy by going to uh, the restrooms, the the trough filled restrooms and at Fenway Park, which no one really thinks about when you're, you know, when you're taking kids to the game and I don't know, I don't want to get blue out of the gate, but I'm just being real. Like this is, this this was one of the things that you said, which is like people have it's absolutely resonated. So congratulations on that. Uh, I'm glad uh, trough urinals is the t- one takeaway that people uh, took from my appearance. I wonder if they are are is there one of them like in the New England Sports Museum or oh, something? Yeah. Or the- I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Listen, if Good. there's if there's a screw from Dustin Pedroia's foot, there's a there's a trough from the Fenway Park. 
New England Sports <laughs> Museum. The other, oh, the, wow. the other one was, of course, you, you. I think you saw the. I had to at Thanksgiving dinner. I had to. You were so nice to sort of give us the behind the scenes of what I said that was the best dinner scene in the history of movies, with a little bit of a sports theme, which was, of course, the 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 Heat, the 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 movie, the Heat. You know, so um, I. We still can't get that photo, huh? We can't get the Ted Williams Jesus home run photo or mural. You mean the painting? The painting, yes. Yeah, I mean they pay, You know that's what's so crazy about those big budget movies. It's like, I mean, I mean it was, it was it's a notable moment because people remember that moment, and it was in the script. But the amount of time and effort that uh, artists and set decorators take to make sure that everything is perfect in the sets that they build. And this was not on a stage. We shot in a house in, in Dorchester somewhere. But they hired an artist who had to paint oil on canvas, Jesus Christ hitting a home run out of Fenway Park. And that this artist was like, all right, today I'm doing this for some weird comedy. And the next day they were probably recreating, you know, whatever, uh, um, the Mona Lisa or something. But 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 that day... They had to paint Jesus Christ hitting a homework. I have to uh, find I have to find that <clears throat> artist. I have to find that artist. So because I feel like I feel like whatever that artist has done, probably like you said, this unbelievable work works of art. There's probably there's probably all these years later, probably wants to go back to the roots of just doing a a Jesus themed sports mural again, just to just to fine-tune their skills. It was so, not only was it like hilarious to look at, just like the swing was perfect. Um, and there was a little star on the ball as it was like leaving the field. But it also is a perfect like copy of those, like in the 60s and 70s, if you go into like an Irish Catholic house in Boston, there are portraits, paintings of Jesus, either like petting a lamb or, you know, doing Jesus stuff, healing people, etc. And they have that sort of, it's not like a velvet Elvis painting, but there's sort of a, like a gaudy kind of over the top seventies vibe to it. And this artist got it exactly right. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. By the way, the speaking of, I don't want really to see random murals because that's doing a disservice to our guy Jonas Never, who's out there. I don't know if you had, were in the, went to Dodger Stadium um, in the time since the trade deadline happened, but if you did, you would have walked right smack dab into the big 30 foot high Joe Kelly mural, which of course, you know, <laughs> why not? <laughs> I think it's appropriate. I think it should be there. I mean, of all the Dodger greats to be up, I feel like he's number one. It's, well, in our eyes, he is. All right. All right. Let's go. So when you were on before, we were talking about <laughs> baseball books that you have a passion for. You have, not only a passion for it, you are next level in terms of being educated educated in the world of literature. And 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 I'm like, okay, well, all of this is coming together because we obviously have the holiday season. We know which book I want to push, but I don't want to, I want to be equal opportunity, a damn near perfect game, which I don't know. Have you been able to, to sink your ears into that at all yet? Oh, yes. Well, no, I, mean, I have a hard copy. I read it. I didn't, I didn't, I don't oh, like okay. to listen. I can't listen. I, I'm too easily distracted. Like when I'm going for walks or I'm on the treadmill, I listen to like, you know, fantasy football podcasts that I kind of like barely listen to. But if it's a book, I really want to, pay attention and slow down and reread things. So audiobooks are tough for me. I just, I can't get into them. 
Okay. You and AJ Preller of San Diego GM. He said the same thing. So. We have so much more in common, but yes, I'll take I'll take that. You are also going to you're also going to trade Juan Soto in a matter of a week. Um so boy oh boy. Uh, so, you know, we we look at well, why don't we save that one for last? I mean, in fairness to the others because it's Absolutely. It's, it's a community. It's a community of books. Um so I I'm I'm just going to give the floor to you, man, like this let's go. This I you you, it's a very valuable service that you're doing to people because as someone who my parents were so well-intentioned, are so well-intentioned and giving me a book <laughs> and it'd be like, here's the sport magazine, you know, top stories of, of 1978. Oh, thank you. Here's the baseball almanac. Oh, thank you. It's a, some light reading, but you're doing a service. I appreciate it, Nate. Well, it, the first service allow me to, to to piggyback on what you just said and say point number one: if your loved one doesn't read and isn't into books, don't give them a book. You're you're wasting their time if they don't read and they're not interested. Then it, get them a gift card to something else to Dave and Buster's. You know what I mean? Like. I, if, if, but if the person, if your husband or wife or brother or sister or friend is a reader, then awesome. Books are wonderful gifts. However, small addendum here. You cannot push a topic that you love and that you're passionate about on someone who could care less. You can't give ball four to your grandmother who wouldn't know Mickey Mantle if she fell over his grave. Like you can't. You can't do that. Your passion for ball four, albeit misplaced, because this this book is completely uh, irrelevant. That's wonderful. You have passions for these things, but you don't give a book about, you know, the Pacific theater in World War II to your nine-year-old nephew. He's not going to be, unless he's really into war. If he's super into war, then, then give him books about the Pacific theater. That leads me to ball four. Arguably the most famous uh, book written about baseball by Jim Bowden. Bowden? Bowden? Yeah, Bowden, yeah, but yeah. Close, yeah, no, sure. Sure. 1970. At its time, when it was published in 1970, it blew people's minds because it was the first time, and baseball perhaps is maybe the most conservative game that is, they, they honor statistics so much. It is such a huge part, the history of the game. Um and so there's a lot of sort of like, you know, people's lips are sealed about talking about the realities of the sort of behind the scenes of what really happens on road trips um, and how much time ball players spend checking out women and like in the, you know, in the first row. This, this book at its time was really compelling because he was like, we got drunk before the game. Can you believe it? But now in today's world, and maybe, I don't know if it's just social media, but people are a lot more comfortable speaking honestly about what it means to be a celebrated athlete. Like every athlete has a podcast and everyone's like, if you want to know about the NHL, if you want to know about NCAA basketball, I'm sure there's an athlete himself or herself speaking openly and honestly about it. In 1970, that never happened. So I read this in 2002 or three and I was bored by it. But I respect it for what it stood for, but it just doesn't resonate really? anymore. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm so surprised. First of all, nobody, like you talk about back then, nobody really does that. 
Jim Bowden was playing at the time. He was playing, right? Yeah. You're still playing. It was so he's talking about swapping wives and and <laughs> I mean, crazy stuff. But I'm shocked that you were bored by it. What was it a was it a generational thing or maybe? Yeah. Just like he really leaned into, you know, I don't know, like this pitcher had, you know, 13 drinks the night before in some hotel in New York and then went out the next day and pitched a two hitter and walked six guys. And this flight was crazy because this guy was cheating on his wife. And I don't know. I, di- I didn't find it um, thought provoking. Mm. It was kind of, f- it's fun in like the scandal of it. Like, can you believe he's saying these things? But now that we know so much about what goes on and <laughs> we see these athletes more as human beings uh, with you know, faults as opposed to maybe 50 years ago where so much of their world was hidden from us because no one talked about it. I just, I just find it sort of out of touch now, but I, but I respect and, and understand people's reverence for the book. Uh, if well, that makes sense. I'm glad you brought that one up. I mean, that's an iconic book. And, and as to, again, I'm not going to mention a damn near perfect game for every book you mentioned, but I will say this, I will say this is that, one of the, I don't know, best compliments, but one of the, the most noteworthy compliments in, well, I don't know, was a comment section or something was, you know, best base written, best uh, uh, baseball book written by an active player, even mm. ball four. And like, so, wow. and, and, and this is the other thing about it. When an active player writes a book, immediately ball four is brought up. They want it to be ball four. And we'll get to you know what it was later, but but they, that's it was interesting because I saw a lot of those too. That mm. the assumption that you're an active player, and not a lot of active players write books, but if you do, it ha- it, oh, you better be like Ball Four. Well, nothing's going to be like. I think there was a sequel to Ball Four too. He wrote another one, right? Yes, he did. He yeah. did. I forget the name of it. Ball Five. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. Well, all right. Um, I'm glad you brought it up. Good one. It, it has to be brought up. And by the um, way, when you said when you said giving ball four to your grandmother, all I could think of was the equivalent of that was when my parents gave me the Eddie Murphy Raw album um, because they thought oh it God. would be funny. <laughs> when oh I was wow. like, when I was like seven years old. Oh, a little bit, a little young, a little yeah. young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. maybe thirteen is okay, but uh, seven. Yeah. I see the one you got for them. There. I, 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 okay, I think it. There you go. Long ball. This is the long ball. This is Tom Adelman um, writing about not just the 1975 World Series, which people debate is the greatest World Series of all time. And I don't know if that's just sort of Boston bias, but um, this book is about the 1975 season, which is is compelling on its own. But he goes into such detail about the World Series. It's the first time that I heard the story of like, the reason why the camera happened to be on Carlton Fisk when he um, hit the homer and did the famous sort of wave fair um, was because there was the, the camera was inside the Green Monster, which is a thing now that is it happens every game, which is new in the last probably what five ten years. Um, yeah, 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 definitely in the last ten. Yeah, yeah. So that shot was really it's iconic for a reason, but 
the reason that the camera was there and was able to capture that shot was because was the cameraman who was inside the green monster. There was a rat, like a huge rat, you know, right by his shoe. And he didn't want to move. He didn't want to move because he didn't want the fucking rat to attack him. So the camera's on Fisk. He's like, oh, shit, I can't. And I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to, the director is saying, pan out and give me a fuller shot. The swing happens and he's like, I'm not moving. I'm just going to move this camera that a little bit and awesome. call him. That's Isn't that awesome. amazing? Yeah, it's great. Just because of a rat. And hopefully they found that rat and had it taxidermied and pull it, <laughs> put it in the New England <laughs> Sports Museum. But right, right. this book, if you're into 1975, if you're, into, if you're compelled by that World Series, this book is so detailed about every game Every inch of this game is covered, and it's really, really fun. That's the awesome. Long Ball, Tom Adelman. I love, I love those type of books where you take sort of a moment in time. And you know, we have there's a basketball book named Forty Eight Minutes. Bob Ryan wrote, which he took one game during the Larry Bird era, and it was just in, in the whether it's one game, one series. But when you break it down like that, I love those. I love it. Well, you you mentioned 48 minutes. The baseball version of that, of course, is Dan O'Krin's Nine Innings. Yeah. yeah. This book is not for the faint of heart. Um, this is for really super passionate baseball isn't boring hardcores because he ch- takes one game, much like Bob Ryan did, uh, not a bird game, not a game sort of surrounding a, a superstar. It was a game with the Brewers and the Orioles in 1982 in the middle of June on a Tuesday with nothing compelling about it. The pitchers were both the number four starters and had ERAs, you know, four and a half or something. Um, There was good players in the game, but the game itself was not compelling for any reason. And he wrote about every pitch and every play and every chapter is cut up into half innings. So, you know, fifth, bottom of the fourth, top of the fourth, and he goes not only play by play, but he, he talks about, you know, the signs that the catcher is giving the pitcher. And then he spends three paragraphs on the evolution and history of catcher pitcher signs. And then someone steals a base. And then he spends like five pages on that one guy, the utility second baseman who swiped his first base of the season and why he fell in the draft and what his issues with the contract are. It is so detailed. It is so incredible. The game itself is completely irrelevant. He just goes into every, and I think about it all the time when I watch baseball on TV, really good commentators, like the great ones are able to take every pitch and find something that can make you, that sort of forwards the story. And sometimes it's too much, probably especially on radio, which which you know about. Um, But Finding sort of the real minutia in a typical nine inning game is really fun. And Dan O'Krin's nine innings is incredible. Can I tell you that as you're talking, it's all the, you know, in this year that we've been doing the podcast, one of the themes is how baseball is so different than any other sport. And, and when you go to it, because it's the best game it's the best sport to watch in person because you can take every single pitch you can take every moment you can break it down and there are so and as a reporter that's why I love covering it because there are so many things in the course of a game and really Nate 
that was for me, besides the pandemic and the travesty that was a pandemic, when you're talking professionally covering baseball, that's where I was really, it opened your eyes because we would, in the course of a game, those awful pandemic, you know, 2020 games, you would watch him and you're like, oh man, I would really like to dig into that thing that happened in the third inning. Well, you would have to step a Zoom call for three weeks down the road where now I walk into the clubhouse and I get to go through. I did a story once where Adrian Gonzalez, when it was with the Red Sox, I went through every bat he had in a game. It wasn't hard. It wasn't, we could have talked for like three hours. So anyway, I'm right. glad you brought that one up. That's one of, that's the magic of baseball, I think, right there. Because I don't think you can do that about hockey, like about a power play. You can't, you 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 couldn't talk for three hours about one two-minute power play. I don't, maybe you could, maybe a really compelling hockey writer could do that, but I don't, I don't know if you could. Football, maybe, but I think the stage has to be big. You can't do that about a Jackson, um, Jackson was good now. Um, you know, an Arizona and, and, uh, Packer game week two, mm. like at Arizona. I don't know if that's as compelling because no, because the, the minutia, cause there's so much, so much standing around. There's so, such little action in football between whistles. Um, I feel like someone did the math of it. I feel like they only played for like 12 minutes or something, which is when they're actually <laughs> physically moving in a yeah, 60 minute game. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's, it's why it's why people there are more baseball nerds than any other sports yeah. because if you if you want to and if you're compelled by it you can really get into the nuts and bolts and the gritty stuff that most people when they go to a game aren't paying attention to but if you want to you can see a whole other world did, which is really fun and did Oakland do you, I don't know if you know the answer to this so did he write that on his own in other words I know that and I'm drawing a blank of the name of the book but someone did it, uh, tried to do a Red Sox game. I think it was in 2004, 2005. Uh, and and they hired people to sort of be interspersed around the stadium. Um, but if, you know, if you're talking about just breaking down the game, you can do that on your own. So I'm just, it's, I don't know, it came to mind. No big deal. Good, good question. I don't have the answer to it, but I'm going to assume Let's give. Let's make him a genius and say that he did it. I like. I like that. Congratulations, <laughs> Daniel. You're a genius. Well uh, done, Danny right. boy. What do we got? I have four more. I have two uh, fiction and I have two nonfiction. We'll do the right. nonfictions first. Um, I'm leaving the fiction beauties for last, so I can really go off on those ones. <laughs> um, the best baseball biography I've ever read is Jane Levy's Sandy Koufax biography. This yes. was published in 2002. And I feel like the subject obviously is very important, but I think it could have been anyone. She's such a good writer. She's a Washington Post baseball writer and did it for generations. And she's she's just a really thoughtful, smart, compassionate writer who really, really listens. But Sandy Koufax, because for so many years, not so much anymore, he's at Dodger Stadium all the time. They have a big, uh, I feel like it was the last year or two years ago, they put up, big um, statue of him uh, yeah. outside the center field wall. I think it was just torn down for put one up for Joe Kelly. I'm not positive. Good. Good. I hope they melted that one down. <laughs> um, Sandy Koufax, you're no Joe Kelly. <laughs> um, so 
because he was so enigmatic and sort of like people didn't know his story because he stayed out of the spotlight and he didn't want to be talked about and written about. And Jane Levy was compelling and, and convincing enough to get him to go on the record. But so much of the book is, is her trying to find him and to pull sort of the truth out of him. And a lot of it about is about, of course, his no hitters and how he's arguably the greatest left-handed pitcher in the history of baseball. And his numbers are insane. And the fact that he grew up in Brooklyn and, you know, in Coney Island and the, the the bigger story, the national story when he was playing was that he was a Jewish ball player who didn't pitch on the Sabbath in the World Series. Mm. And that is still such an, an unbelievably compelling story. And then she goes in really in depth about that with him and his faith. But Sandy Koufax is not only just unbearably brilliant and go on if for people who never who don't know anything about him that just watching you can watch him pitch on just look up sandy kovacs you no know, haters on youtube his delivery is like still my favorite baseball <laughs> delivery besides pedro um but Co this book is so good and she's just a magical writer and as far as biographies go a lefty's legacy jane levy sandy kovacs this is the top of my list it's you know, it, it's so good because, like you said, it's it's the op. What that book is is the opposite of all the bad. I'm an athlete. I'm writing a book. Books, and because so many times, you know, Torello and Charles, whoever it is. Oh well, you're an athlete. You can write a book. Well, you're. All, we see you all the time. We don't. You know, fine. And I understand why publishers do it. Those are the what you can have like all blank pages. It doesn't make a difference. It's marketable. But Koufax, to your point, Nate, is that he was so good and it was such a relatively short amount of time. It was the, this legend. And then the fact that he did sort of disappear made it even better. Awesome one. I love it. Yeah. He's such a compelling, compelling figure. Um, all right. Only three more to go. This is my last uh, nonfiction. This is Jonathan Mahler's The Bronx. Ladies and gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning, 1977, Baseball Politics and the Battle for the Soul of the City. This is a this is a this is a book about politics. This is a book about democratic politics. This is this is a book about city politics. Um, it's a book about, you know, the about Son of Sam. It's a book about the blackout. But this thread that Mahler runs through the book is the 77 Yankees. It's not about the Yankees. It's about New York City and this run for mayor and all the fucking madness that was, you know, this is like Ford to city, Ford to Ford to city drop dead. That very famous New York post headline when that the city was bankrupt yeah. and they asked the government for money and Ford said, fuck off, <laughs> which is just remarkable. This is like the grittiest of the gritty 1977 New York city is just, this is punk rock. This is CBGBs. This is like Lower East Side Bowery, you know, like hardcore art scene. And then up in the Bronx, um, where you like, you had to like, you know, you had to be packing to survive. There was this team that Billy Martin was managing with Reggie Jackson and Lupin and all these ridiculous personality, Thurman Munson. And these characters, it's so, you kind of can't believe that all these things happened in a span of six months, like the blackout, you could write 10 books about the blackout. Yeah. You can write 10 books about the mayor's race, a beam and 
Mayor Koch and, and, um, oh God, uh, Cuomo. Um, and you can, you can write about all, and then you can write about the Yankees. Mahler writes about all these things and threads them perfectly. And if you, if you're interested, if you like me, I lived in New York for six years. So I have a soft spot spot for like sort of the dark punk rock side of New York. If you're interested in that world at all, this, this book is so much fun. I cannot recommend it high enough. Is this, no, I don't know if you remember, I think it was a 2007 ESPN series, The Bronx is Burning. So, yeah, yes. uh, was that, so, because I'm trying to remember, because what I remember about that is obviously the Yankees. It was about the Yankees, but how much they interspersed what you're talking about into it. And what, Nate, what I always remember about that, and the reporters who were around will, will back me up on this, and all the clubhouses that I've been in, it was uh, just a, a game in Cleveland. The Red Sox won this really close one nothing game or something. And usually they're happy the music's playing. Immediately when the game ended, everyone was on the couch in the clubhouse watching the Bronx is burning. Like on, Wow. Yeah. It was like it, it hit for those players because it wasn't at that time. I mean, think about 07. There wasn't like there is now. There wasn't that thing. And and yeah, I mean, it was it was like I've n- I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Huh. Yeah. See, I, I watched like three episodes of it, and I didn't love it. I thought it was a little over the top, and and uh, Totoro, I think, was played Billy Martin, and I he does he had weird prosthetics, and I couldn't get past that. Um, yeah. Well, I think I, I think it, I think it's because maybe like you said, it, if we're dropping it in now, there's too many of them. Like look at winning, you know, winning time was pretty good. I you know I thought. Right. Probably better than that series. Yeah, you know, but, yeah for yeah. sure. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, The Bronx is Burning. It's just, this book is so, it is so good. It is so <laughs> much fun. Um, last two. Fiction, right? That's it. Fiction. Um, I'll give one the silver medal and I'll give one the gold medal. All right. The silver medal is very close. So, before my last book was written, this was my favorite book. And one of the, in my opinion, the greatest piece of fiction written about baseball. The Universal Baseball Association, Inc., uh, J. Henry Waugh Prop. This was published in 1968. This is the British, first edition British copy, so the, the cover is a little bit different. But this book is about this lonely, sad accountant uh in london in 1968 whose whole life he lives in his brain he's created this fictional baseball league in his head and he uses dice and cards and scorecards to play out entire seasons of these 10 teams and he has the entire histories of all these teams and has all the stats of all these teams and they're all in his brain and he come home, comes, comes home from work, and all day he only thinks about these players and what happens in their lives. And he sort of plays God to all these, these players. But what's happening in the game is sort of metaphor for what is happening in his actual life. And the only way that he's able to process the difficulties of his actual life is through this game. And it's equally compelling to me because about 20 years ago I was turned on to – this baseball game called Stratomatic. Do you know Stratomatic? Yeah, yeah. So some people, allow me 30 seconds to describe what 
Stratomatic is to someone who doesn't know. Stratomatic is a game, is a board game that you play with dice and cards, and you can recreate a baseball game. They have these little charts. You can roll for weather. You roll on whether the ball is fair or foul. You roll on whether the player has an error. You roll on everything. You can play games. I got so into this game. I joined this league online with a bunch of random folks from all over the country. And I would play these games like twice a week during the baseball season, like over, this is before Zoom, over, God, AOL chat or something. <laughs> we play like 70 game series. This this league, it's since diminished, but a couple of guys that I was close with, it's still going on. 2023, I still have a team. Now it's online. It's called, if I can give it a, 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 uh, a plug because it's so good. Dynasty League Baseball. Yeah, yeah of course. Which, yeah. yeah, it used to be Pursue the Pennant. Pursue the Pennant and Stratomatic are basically the same thing. But I am obsessed with this game. I love it. It's so much fun. And this is sort of like the fictionalized version of this, but it's a lot darker and the subjects are very heavy because this guy is going through a lot of crap in his life. But it's an amazing book. It's it's brilliant. That's, I mean, the, the, the timing of it is so incredible. And sort of the precursor to what you're talking about is incredible. And I, I'm totally with you. I know, I, I'm glad you explained it, but Stratomatic was, that, that was... That was a cool game. That was a cool oh, and and could, to to think about like to think about the patience and the the actual physical things that you have. I mean, it's just everything. It goes against what everything is now, but I don't care. I don't care. Hundred percent. Yeah, the tangibility. It's it's yeah. Dungeons and Dragons, but instead yes. of warlocks and wizards, it's Ozzy Smith and Paul Molitor. All right, gold medal. Um, gold medal. Gold, gold medal. And it's not even close. This is my favorite book that was written in the 21st century. It's by Chad Harbatch. It's called The Art of Fielding. This novel, you know, it's 2023. So there's been 23 years of literature that's been, that has been written. There's, there's a lot of wonderful novels. So there's, you know, there's the cor- the corrections is another favorite novel of mine, which has nothing to do with baseball, but it's a Jonathan Franzen novel it happens to be my favorite. Um, you know, Tony, like all of these remarkable titans who have been written novels in the last 23 years, this novel to me is the most compelling. It's about a division three baseball team at a small Midwest college, liberal arts college. Think like, you know, Amherst or Williams, but, but set it in, in, I think it's Illinois or Michigan. And it's about these characters. It's about the president of the college. It's about the president's daughter. It's about this, the, the senior who's the catcher on the team. And it's about this rookie shortstop, this guy who has the best glove that anyone has ever seen. He's the greatest fielding shortstop that this college has ever seen. But he's this sort of super naive, eccentric kid who doesn't, who grew up on a farm and he just walked around with that, I think it was Ozzie Smith, maybe, or Ron Martin, I'm not sure. But there's a book called The Art of Fielding, um, which he's sort of become, he's obsessed. And it's about him sort of like growing up and finding himself in college with the support of all these people around him. But it is a breathtakingly beautiful and heartbreaking book. You don't have to like baseball to be into this. 
if, if I'm recommending one book to anyone to read, probably, no matter what their interest level is and where their re- reading level is, it's The Art of Feeling. It is so remarkable. It's his only book. He's yet to write another one. And he, he speaks about this online, about how he's frozen with writer's block because this was such a celebrated novel. He is too scared to do it again because he knows the bar has been set so high. Oh, he's man. I know. How painful. I know. He's te- he, I think he's teaching either at the new school or at NYU, like an MFA grad writing program. And he's writing, but uh, I don't know what the latest update is, what? but it's, it's um, yeah. What year? What year? This is in 2000 and let's see here. Nine. 2011. Okay. All right. Um, It's, it's, it is so beautiful. It'll make you weep. It'll make you laugh, but it's just, it's the human story. And there's a character, no spoiler alert, but there's a character, there's one of the, one of the characters in the book dies. And this guy writes a paragraph or page about the moment of his death. And you are there with him as he is dying, as he is sort of like flashing through the history. I'm getting chills thinking about it, flashing through the history of his life and the moments that come back to him in this moment. And he's reali- realizing that he's dying. And you see the physical, you see the room change and he's changing and, it's in, and it goes to this final moment and it's just the end of the chapter. And the next chapter begins with people mourning his death. But it is like, it is th- some of the best fiction writing I've ever read in my life. Let me ask the sacrilegious question. Has anybody had the idea of what well, I have not read the book. I am going to read it now. Has anybody had the idea of making it into a movie? I'm sure. I'm sure it's been optioned. Because uh, of what you're describing, I'm like, I would. <laughs> it's the it's like the perfect. Um, it would be like a lower budget indie. Um, it would be like, you know, the leftovers sort of like, uh, is that what it's called? The. Uh, the new uh, Paul Giamatti movie. Yeah. Um, it'd be it'd be small and quiet um, and sort of like a character study with the cameras really up close to people's faces. Um, I I'm sure it was. I'm sure someone wrote a bad yeah. version of a script and then it just and the option disappeared. But you know, now that you say that, I'm going to reach out to the attorney and see where the option is on this. Just in case, let's go. It was like the one of my favorite ones. The catcher is a spot was a spy, Mo oh, Berg, yeah. and and that was the why isn't that a movie? Why isn't that a movie? Why isn't that a movie? And um, the boxing commentator owned the rights to it. I forget what his name was, but he wouldn't let it go. Ultimately, it did get made into a movie. I don't think it did very well. I don't know. I don't know. I'm glad it was made into a movie, but I was like, oh man, like that. There's some things that you're like, oh, that would be sensical, I guess. So I, I, know, Paul you're Rudd. Going, I know you're going to get going. So um, one star to to you give a damn near perfect game. One star. I want honest. I want honesty. Oh no 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 no! A, a, a damn near perfect game. I give. I absolutely unequivocally give four stars. Not only because of like as you said, the bravery of Joe to write this book while he's, while he's still playing. But I mean, the conversations with Rob Manfred, it's, it's, it's funny and charming, which um, I don't know, Joe, I've never met him, but, but I'm assuming he's, he's like that in real life. He's like just a compelling, interesting 
and thoughtful guy in a world of ball players who typically aren't. Frankly, you know better than anyone as a guy who spent his life covering ball players. But it's really hard. It's really ha- hard to be honest and to sort of like speak truth to power, which is something he does that you guys do in this book over and over again. And again, baseball is very conservative. I love the new rules. I love the ways that they are sort of pushing the boundaries. And you guys sort of attack that really in earnest, which is awesome. And I can see people like rolling in their graves about these new sh- new changes. But I love the shifts. And I love that it's a celebration of like, like it's almost like you're saying, hold on, wait, 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 wait. Like, you think baseball is, hold on. You don't think baseball is compelling? Like, you think the NBA is more compelling than baseball? I'm going to give you a thousand reasons why you're wrong. And that's what the book does over and over again. It's fantastic. Well, thank you for that. It made my day. Um, and I'll pass that on to Joe. And it was it was a blast. And, and really, as I probably told you, emanated from the lockout. He wrote an op-ed in the lo- in, the, in the LA Times the last week of the lockout. Say, hey, let's not forget why you like it. And, and, and the other part about it was just talking to different people and, and everyone has a baseball story. Like you're like, I love your baseball story stories. Um, I love Mark Hoppus's story. How he didn't become a baseball fan in his late thirties. You know, I it's and it's still, it's, I may have told you this the last time, but there's also some constant themes when we talk to people about their love of baseball. And it was the green has never been greener and the whites are never been wider when you walk in. Like that, I heard John Hamm said that. Uh, Andy Cohen said that. We both St. Louis guys, but you know, I heard I've heard that a ton, so much, and so true. So there's more romantic, there's more romanticism attached to baseball than any other sport, and it's and it's easy to realize why. All right. Well, I know that you uh, have an impending birth to tend to, so <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate it. Uh, I have, well, I have therapy at eleven, and it's a fifteen-minute drive, so that's why I have to leave. Right, I'll let you. Hey. I'll, let, I'll let you go. Thank you, man. <laughs> hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including twenty major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So, why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team.